everybody. Welcome to the latest Mark Leverage podcast, this one being for August 2020. And I suppose it's uh, only right and proper, perhaps, that I start by talking about the effect on magic that the COVID-19 pandemic is still having. Every month when I start the podcast, it's one of the first things that occurs to me to talk about. And I'm recording this in the middle of July. And at this point, in the UK at least, there have been a few elements of social distancing that have been relaxed to allow people to go into shops more and this sort of thing. But I think for us magicians, generally speaking, it's still basically a closed door. I mean, theatres aren't at this stage allowed to have audiences in, although strangely cinemas are. I don't quite understand the intrinsic difference, unless, of course, they're referring to the, the problems that the backstage staff and all the people behind the scenes working in a theatre, maybe they're, they're considered to be put at risk if you put on performances, whereas in a cinema, not so much. Don't know. But anyway, so that means that uh, theatres aren't open and other performing places aren't either. And people, although they're allowed to get together in relatively small groups, normally it's outside and there are limits to the number of people that can be there and so on and so forth. So for us magicians and even strolling magicians, social distancing rules mean that we're unlikely to get invited to come along and entertain. And of course, what this has meant is that magicians have started well, not just started, for some while now, several weeks in fact, I've been increasingly turning to the internet and Zoom in particular, can I just point out at this point, as they always do this, I never know why they do this so pointedly, but they always say if they mention a product, they'll say, uh, in this case, they would say, other web conferencing software is available. Everybody's turning to Zoom in order to do a certain amount of presentations, sort of shows, but also, of course, amongst magicians to do lectures to magic clubs. And there's been quite a boom in it. And in fact, a lot of the people who normally lecture are now advertising the fact they can do lectures by Zoom. And although it's it's great, I mean, I, I think it's brilliant that we can do this. And I wonder where we would be if we couldn't do this, to be honest, because I think we would all be incredibly isolated and unable to exchange ideas, get stimulated with our magic hobby if we couldn't do this sort of thing. But in terms of the way that these Zoom presentations are going ahead, it's it's interesting because the other day, for the first time, I did a presentation, a, a show for 15 minutes on Zoom. And it was interesting to me because I suddenly realised that with the, I did it in this man's house, in fact, um, he was the host of the thing and I was with him. So I had a, somebody there who I could use as a spectator to take a card or I could borrow something from. So in that sense, I wasn't disconnected. But if he hadn't been there, that would have been completely removed. So all the tricks that I would have had to choose would have naturally enough be tricks that didn't require me to take something from an audience or get an audience member to do something meaningful. You know, you can get them to select a card by fanning the deck and and asking one of the people watching to to think of a card and so on. You can do that sort of thing, but you there are other things that you can't do. You can't borrow somebody's ring and do magic with it, obviously, and that sort of thing. So there was that element of it. But also the other thing that occurred to me was that the way he'd set it up, I was in front of the camera that was on his laptop. So the laptop screen was facing me. So I was facing me as I performed. It was a bit like having a practice session on a practice mirror. 
except that you know it was he was backwards and the same kind of so if i move to the left the thing in the picture the person in the picture moved to the right you know it's it, it, it was kind of weird and it was something that i i hadn't quite anticipated it would be so off-putting i got used to it very quickly but just for the first few moments there i thought well this is strange I can't really see the audience as a few people I can see on the side of the screen because he obviously put me on full screen. But um, other than that, you can't see your audience. They're all muted, so there's no applause and no reaction. I mean, people can put the little clap thing on chat or whatever, but a lot of people don't know about that, so they don't tend to do it anyway. Which means that when you get to the end of one trick and you go to start another, you've got to kind of fill in the gap. And it was all little things like that that made me think, well, this is interesting. This is going to this is a skill in itself and one that I suspect that we're all going to have to get used to. All those of us who who want to present over the Internet in this way, we're going to have to get used to this sort of semi interaction with our audiences and find ways to make it work, to make it effective and to make it entertaining for the people watching. Christopher Barnes, or as he is called when he does his children's shows, Christopher T. Magician, is um, a very extrovert performer from California who has produced some really, really excellent books and DVDs on entertaining children and on how to create magic for those particular young people. And I've got a lot of time for him. I think he's, his thinking is really different He's incredibly practical in the way that he goes about what he does. And he blends his skills as, a, as an actor in with the sort of ingredients that you would expect to find in children's magic to create a really theatrical show. And it's absolutely fantastic to watch. He also has some extraordinarily different ideas, tricks that are not just take a standard prop and tweak it a little bit with a bit of presentation. A lot of his props that he uses are everyday objects that the kids can relate to, but which are not normally seen as magic props, and he creates these fabulous, funny routines with them. Anyway, the reason I mention him is because he said something in one of his books that uh, that struck a chord with me, and I wanted to, to sort of mention it to you. He said, relaxation, listening, silence, and pausing... These are the signs of a true pro. And what he's referring to is that when we perform, we and he admits that he's like this, he gets very hyper because he's incredibly energetic as a performer. And he was saying that one of the problems that he sometimes finds is that if he gets a bit a bit nervous about a situation, that he, he tends to overcompensate by becoming even more wild and wacky and loud and sometimes found that he was forgetting that sometimes a pause or a piece of silence just for a few moments following a noisy interlude and then continuing afterwards is incredibly effective. And he said, these are the signs of a, of a true pro. And it made me reflect on some of the people who I admire, and they most of them have this ability. They have a self-control and a self-confidence that allows them to slow down. I think we all do. I think if we're nervous, we tend to talk faster for a start, but we also perform without breaks. You know, if we get to the end of a trick and you're worried that it's not going to get a reaction, 
you might talk over the strong magical moment of the trick because you're nervous that there'll be this pause that nobody will react or that they won't like it or whatever. And so in panic, instead of pausing and letting them the effects sink in and then waiting for the reaction, we tend to rush over it and go on to the next thing, thereby destroying all that the build-up in the effect was leading to. We've now destroyed it and reduced the effectiveness of the final moments. I remember seeing Carol Fox compare one of the British Ringala shows. It must have been back in the in the 1980s or even perhaps, yeah, 1980s, I'm sure it was then. And he was so in command of this enormous auditorium and this enormous audience. He was, he was, he spoke slowly. Everything he did was measured. At one point, he, he even sat down on the edge of the stage in a very casual manner when he's comparing a show, this is and just swinging his legs casually and was just sort of in an entertaining and engaging way. He he was chatting to some people in the front row and you could hear a pin drop. You know, people weren't restless because he had total control. You felt you were in the presence of somebody who knew exactly what they were doing. And as a result of that, you relaxed and he was able to pause. He was he was able to to relax with the audience and you relaxed, too. So it all the whole thing was just so nice to be. In fact, I was got to the point in the show where I was looking forward to him coming back on. Normally, it's the other way around. You think, oh, for goodness sake, the comp here, look, just announce them and get off because some of them overstay their welcome and some of them don't don't do a very good job. But he, on the other hand, I was really oh good. He's back. I really enjoyed the way he did that. So. In my past, I can remember times when I've rushed through things because I was nervous, when I'm out of my comfort zone in a, in a show and, and I've rushed. And I've realised over the years that actually you do sometimes need to take a deep breath almost and allow yourself to relax, slow down a bit. And it's surprising that the, 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 the sort of the disaster that you thought your show was becoming, actually, it isn't. It's perfectly fine. It's just that you were rushing and when you stop rushing and stop worrying, then everything goes so much better. We all live in a society these days where we are constantly being asked to evaluate and rate just about everything that we do in our lives. Whether it's TripAdvisor asking us how we got on in a restaurant or on a holiday, or whether it's Amazon, how, how was the sellotape that you bought. And this sort of range of comment that we are constantly being badgered to give has spread wider and wider and wider uh, until there's virtually nothing now where of any note anyway some things even though aren't particularly of note where we're not asked to evaluate and give a score for and as magicians when we do our shows I suppose it's inevitable that we are going to be rated as well the only difference is I think we probably always have been you know, if you say to somebody that you're a magician, they immediately go, oh, right, show us a trick then. But immediately they need you or they would like you to show them something and they're going to evaluate you. Oh, you say you're a magician, eh? Prove it. Show us a trick. It's almost like a throwing down a challenge and saying, you're a magician. Now you're going to show me you're a magician. and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to decide whether you are one or not. And every time we go to perform, we do actually put ourselves up for scrutiny and you know what it's like you can do a show and 99% of it goes really really well 
but there might be one moment where you drop something or where something goes slightly wrong. It may not even be calamitous. It may not even be something the audience notices, but you know that it wasn't meant to go like that and you didn't feel that you covered very well for it. And you feel kind of annoyed with yourself afterwards, don't you? And you find yourself, as you're driving home, going over and over in your mind. How could I have stopped that? Why did that happen? It's never happened before. I've done that trick so many times. And, and you really overanalyze it, probably, because if you stood back and thought, well, 99% of the show was perfect, well, as near perfect as any show ever is, it was only that one little thing, then maybe we should lighten up a bit and not be so critical. But of course, the trouble is that nowadays, things like social media and other easy to use forums for critique, shall we put it kindly, um, are abundant. They're out there all the time. And anybody can, even while you're performing, they can be posting stuff on Facebook or elsewhere on Twitter, criticising you. And I think if you're the sort of person who, who is very much into social media, that can be quite hurtful. Because it always seems to me it's nearly always the people who dislike something or who think it's clever to criticise who make a loud da-da noise on social media. It's always easier to denigrate and to rubbish something than it is to praise it, it seems. And although there are people who say, oh, that was great, but they're not the ones you remember. As I mentioned a moment ago, 99% of the show was fine. The, the 1% was the bit you worried about. If you get 20 comments on social media, and one of them says something hurtful to you and you've read it, that's the one you're going to remember, isn't it? It almost certainly is. It's really hard because a show is such a personal thing. You're really putting yourself out there in, in a very personal way. You're exposing your, your skill levels and your entertainment prowess and so on and so forth. So when somebody criticises it, it, it can hurt, especially when you put a lot of effort into creating the show in the first place. So my question is this, unless we've actually asked somebody specifically who we trust and who we know to be honest and who has no axe to grind to, to give us criticism on, a sh on our show, should we actually not pay any attention to what people say? In the same way that when you go to buy a product on Amazon, if you read the 50 reviews or whatever, there'll be some of the reviews there that will say it's the worst product they've ever bought and there will be other people who say it's absolutely fantastic. It's a very subjective thing and there can be all sorts of reasons why people rubbish a product or why people praise it. And the same is with the show. Is it actually really worth getting steamed up about people saying stuff? Just ignore it. If you just ignore it and you, and you rely on your own antennae, your own sense of, well, how did that go? from the audience reaction, what you could see on people's faces at the time. Surely that's a much better barometer of how well you did than reading social media or other places where people make snide comments. So I I've, I've, must admit I have withdrawn almost entirely from social media because I find it irritating, to be honest with you. And, uh, and that sort of side of it, that element of it, I really don't like and I don't think it's fair. And I would like to think that those people who have some common sense would say, listen, I'm just not going to read it. I don't need to know that. If I want critique on my show, I will ask somebody knowledgeable and who has an idea about what they're talking about and not just rely on Joe Public, who probably has an ill-informed view in any case, making some spurious and probably ill-informed comments. About this time of year... 
but about four years ago, I think it was, something happened to me at a show which had never happened before. And I hope never happens again ever in the future. I was uh, I was doing some close-up at a party and it was a lovely evening actually. It was a nice mellow summer's evening and I'm all dressed up in my, uh, my three-piece performance suit and I'm walking along the road and I'm walking between two buildings and I hear this sound that makes me look up. It's a screech of a bird, a large bird. Actually, it's a seagull, which is odd because we're nowhere near the the, uh, the sea. But then I suppose there are more seagulls in town centres these days than there are near the seaside. But that's another matter entirely. Anyway, so I look up and I see this seagull launch himself off the building and swoop down. And just as he, he starts to swoop, he lets off a volley of excrement. And I could see it, lots of it, splats of it, heading in my direction. And it was as time stood still, it was coming right for me. And I, and I, because I'd looked up when he'd squawked, I, I had a view of it heading towards me in the, in the sort of two or three seconds that it took to get to me. I tried to jump out of the way, to stop and back off and jump out of the way, and just totally and completely failed. And as a result, I was completely covered all down my jacket, my waistcoat, my trousers, my shoes, didn't go in my hair or, or anywhere like that, but just all over my performance suit. I was completely covered. It wasn't just a little bit. And I'm standing there. I couldn't believe it. I thought there was virtually nothing on the ground. It was, the, you know, if you had to say well done to the to the seagull, because that was a heck of a good shot. If he was trying to hit me, he absolutely got it, absolutely nailed it. Anyway, so I'm standing there and I'm dripping. I'm thinking, what on earth am I going to do? I, I'm, I'm, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't wipe it off. I had nothing to wipe it off with. It was a, a complete disaster. And the only thing that made it okay, if that's the right phrase or word to use, was the fact that I was walking back to my car from the show, and not walking to the show from my car. So, in other words, I'd done the show already, and I was walking back to go home when the bird struck. And I got back to the car and I had some tissues. I tried to wipe up. It was impossible. The suit went to the dry cleaners and I remember taking it in and I said to them, um, I showed them the, the disaster that was my suit. And I said, yeah, a bird went to town on me. And I said, uh, I hope you can get that out. She said, oh, we'll see what we can do. See what you can do. Look, I'm not going to pay all this money if you can't get it out. Anyway, they did. They did get it out. But um, and I, I've always thought that how lucky, in fact, was that? that I was walking away from the show. Because had I been walking to the show and that had happened, how on earth do you get round that? Because you, you could not wipe this off. It, there was so much of it. It was so embedded into the material of the clothing. I absolutely don't know what I... You can't spend... And it stinks. So you can't spend an entire evening... Well, but you could. You might have to. Entertaining people with bird poo all down you. I mean, you just couldn't do it. Could, could you, really? And I don't know what the answer is, what I would have done had it worked around the other way. I was just really happy that I was going home and not going to the show. In my June podcast, I was talking about whether digital magic books had less value than printed magic books. 
and I want to explore the same kind of theme this time, only in relation to Magic Magazines. It came to mind because Magic Scene, which as you know I'm the editor of, has had to print the May and July issues in digital format only for a number of complicated but related reasons. It's not been possible for us to print. And the same is going to be true of the September issue. Although this is going to be the final one that's in digital only format, we are definitely going to be printing from November onwards again. However, all the people who pay to have a printed copy of the magazine, we've been extending their subscription period so that they don't lose out. So they're getting effectively a free digital version and um, will ultimately have the right number of printed versions that they've paid for. So I, I just wonder how many people value the printed version, if you like, of the magazine more than they value the digital one. A magazine is, by its nature, I guess, a more of a transitory thing, perhaps, than a book. Magazine is very much of the now, isn't it? I mean, Magic Scene is not a newsy magazine because it's every two months and there's, there's no point in us trying to keep up to date with a lot of current events because we have, with the lead time that we have to give but to produce the magazine, by the time something is actually in the magazine that's topical, it's no longer topical. So we have a few things, but but nothing that's very time sensitive. And so we have advice articles and, and we have other things that have a bit more substance. But nevertheless, it doesn't have the same sort of weight, if you like, as a book does. So does that mean that a digital version of a magazine is more acceptable than a printed one? I mean, we are first and foremost a printed magazine. That's how we, we, we like to see ourselves and we feel it's the thing that that is nice to be in a very digital world. But we do have a digital version and certain people have subscriptions with us just to receive it as a PDF and not as uh, as a printed version at all. And some of the printed version people take up the option to have a free copy of the digital one in advance as well. So they have both, you know. So I think that the, the thing about magazines is, to my way of thinking, we, we spend a lot of time looking at screens, don't we, and having things in digital format. But I think a magazine which doesn't take so long to read and which is visually actually very interesting because of all the graphics and everything else, it's an easier read to, to on, on a screen to say a book full of dense text, then I think actually a digital version is absolutely fine. And some people like it because it's very easy when you have a, a sub for many years to a magazine to, uh, if you have printed subs in the past, you will have great piles of magazines that you actually will never look at again probably and you don't know what to do with. When they're in digital format, if you do get bored with them, you think, oh, I don't need those anymore. You can just delete them. I mean, it's it's as simple as that. So in that sense, if it's magazines are slightly more throwaway, I guess having a digital version makes more sense than, well, not more sense, as much sense as having a printed version. And I think that's why some people are more um, likely to have a digi digital sub to a magazine than they are to perhaps have all digital books. There is an accepted maxim in magic that you should never tell the audience in advance what you're going to do. It's something that is drummed into us from an early age. And yet, interestingly, 
in the Share Magic event that Vanishing Inc. ran online earlier this year, Danny DeOrtis, who was one of the lecturers that day, said completely the opposite. He said that he thought you should tell the audience what's going to happen in the trick. And then as you go through the trick, you metaphorically shut the door, if you like, on all the potential methods that might occur to people when they hear what's going to happen. So that by the time you get to the denouement at the end of the trick, it's so much more impressive. So that's, that's a rather interesting twisting of the original idea, isn't it? Don't tell them. Definitely tell them. Now, of course, it could be that it depends on the audience and it also very much depends I would imagine, on the trick itself. Tricks that rely on surprise, something totally unexpected happening, I, wouldn't, I would suggest are not going to be improved by telling the audience in advance that they're going to happen. So, for instance, you could say, at the end of this trick with, the, with this silver cup and this white ball, I'm going to produce a lemon from underneath this cup. Now, if you tell them that's going to happen, then clearly it's not going to be a surprise. All they're doing is looking for how you're going to somehow load this lemon into the cup. So in that type of trick, it doesn't really work. But the sort of tricks that Danny does, actually, it does lend itself because his, his tricks are quite often convoluted. They're involved. They're really funny. They are intricate in themselves. And they, they, they look... Of course they're not, but he gives the impression because of the way he presents and they're quite ramshackle and disordered. Well, of course, you know, be great, wouldn't it, if your card ended up inside that card box, but of course it can't. You know, that he can get away with this sort of tipping off what the ending's going to be because his methodology, he's so far ahead most of the time um, that the method's probably already completed by the time he tells them what's going to happen. So he's not being chased in that sense because he's already done it. But the principle of telling people always what you're going to do, I don't know he says always, he just says telling them can be very effective, is something that perhaps with certain tricks it might be worth considering. I think particularly for magicians, and maybe, I don't know whether Danny is referring to entertaining magicians in particular, but as magicians, when we watch another performer work, what are we doing? All right, we might on some level be appreciating the presentation and 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 the the way that the, the performer has put together the routine but what we're really doing is just sitting there trying to work out the method aren't we oh he's using the so-and-so method or that gaff or this gaff so we're analyzing we're deconstructing it as the person goes along and so if danny at the beginning of his trick tips off what is going to be achieved by the end of the trick for a bunch of magicians this is absolutely marvelous because now we sharpen our mental muscle, as it were, and we think, right, OK, so that's going to happen. So now I'm going to see if I can spot at what point what I think he's going to do, he's actually going to do. So I think for, for magicians who are analysing tricks in any case, maybe it's actually quite a clever and quite a good way to go. But I would suggest that for lay people, it's possibly A, not necessary, uh, and, and be not possibly not desirable, particularly obviously if there's a surprise. And I know that um, that Tamriz has a similar way of approaching things, doesn't he? That he he will sort of prove that it's not this and it's not that and it's not the other. So how on earth did this happen? He does the same thing. He he shuts doors on methods as soon as he thinks that somebody might be a, well. You might think it's gone up my sleeve. He would push his sleeves up or, or whatever. 
constantly proving what they might be thinking is wrong until they get to the point, the lay people, where they simply run out of ideas as to what it could possibly be and then he actually does the trick. So it, it is, in that sense, more impossible and more impressive. But uh, I wondered how, how many people thought, oh, hearing him say Danny say that, were thinking, oh, well, I've got to apply that to all tricks, do I? Oh, good grief, I hope not. I mean, it would, really wouldn't be a good thing, would it? But uh, just to an, uh, with an occasional effect, and with the right audience. I mean, lay people audiences, sometimes they're quite analytical too. There are certain types of people, they don't want to be entertained. They just want to work out how you're doing the darn stuff. And so for people like that, setting up a, a sort of mini challenge, provided that your technique and the method is actually good enough, might be a really good way to impress those people who, if you didn't do that, might not be so impressed because they would perhaps come up with methods that you haven't shut the door on. And so therefore it gives them, even if it's completely wrong, it gives them an excuse to think that they know how you're doing it. And they only need to think that they know and that's if you haven't proved that it's not the case, then they think they've worked out the trick and you are not as good a magician as you think that you are. Well, thank you very much for listening to the last half an hour. It's been great to have your company and I will look forward to seeing you again in September. And by that time, let's hope that the theatres have opened again or that show inquiries start to come back in again so we can just begin to get back to some semblance of normality.